HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. To learn more, visit rt11.com. You're listening to Fields, the podcast, with Melissa Metric and wife Marshall. On Fields, we bring you stories about the future, present, and past of urban agriculture, and in general, explore really interesting concepts and meet lots of fascinating people who get up every day and grow food in and around cities, starting with the city we live in, New York City. Moreover, we'll investigate all the whys behind getting up in the morning and working as a farmer in the city today. Fields will be talking about a crop that has been in the news a lot lately, cannabis. Wyeth and I first go over the new cannabis law, Law 360, that recently was passed in New York, and what that embodies. Then we interview our colleague Alex Roligan, who studies cannabis for his PhD at MIT. We interviewed Alex over a year ago, so a lot has changed since we spoke to him. But we still talk about key issues within cannabis being legalized, how and why people grow cannabis as well as why cannabis is a cultural phenomenon. So we still find this to be really interesting content. So let's get to Cannabis Law 360. So first off, um, adults 21 and older will be able to buy cannabis and grow up to six plants for personal use. So that's kind of really interesting. Um, And I think I'm not totally sure about it, but it might also provide automatic expungence for those prior with cannabis convictions. Um, So that, yep. And then one other thing is low to zero interest loans for those who want to start cannabis businesses. Yeah, and it creates an office of cannabis management, which is really interesting to think about that we still don't really have an office of urban agriculture, but we might get an office of cannabis management for just the cannabis community, uh, which like is rad, but also maybe we should also get that office of urban ag that we've been trying to get for a few years. So uh, it's it's interesting times for sure, but it's great that at least the plan, yeah, it does mention, you know, really trying to um, expunge past cannabis convictions. Um, and yeah, I don't know all the details either, but I mean, that language is in there. So, you know, it's something we'd have to hold the governor to as a, as a voting citizenry. 
Now that we've explained the law very briefly, let's get to our interview with Alex to get more of a deep dive into the world of cannabis. Hi, I'm Alex Rewegan. I'm a second year PhD student at MIT's uh, graduate program in history, anthropology, science, technology, and society. So, um, and, we, and we just chatted a little before we, we should call Melissa. Um, so we're here today to talk about favorite subject um, of many people, which is <laughs> cannabis. Um, do you want to, do you want to give us a little background on like some of your previous research and anticipated future research, or do you want to come back to that? How I came to the question of cannabis is I was working in sort of medical research before. And so I have a degree in anthropology and I have a master's degree in anthropology and I really focused on questions of health and illness and sort of the cultural and social uh, dynamics of health and illness. So cannabis was an interesting object to ask these kinds of questions about like how do our medical systems work? How do people get their drugs? What is uh, sort of like the hard biological um, pharmacological sciences think drugs are? Um, and so cannabis was sort of a timely object, if you will, to go into the field and sort of ask these anthropological questions about how people are coming to understand what this plant is um, with medicine and science sort of as the key focus for me. So you've already sort of asked a lot of people a lot of questions, I'm guessing, about cannabis in different ways. Yeah. So I actually haven't started the research, the sort of formal research, you would say. Um, but of course, um, I'm just constantly surrounded, especially in text um, when it comes to, say, new the news, um, keeping up with sort of journalistic accounts of things, um, trying to just understand this process of legalization as it happens in uh, a lot of places in really different ways. And it's sort of, you know, ongoing every day. There's a new story about something. Um, but yes, I have also been spending a lot of time interviewing different kinds of uh, actors that are sort of positioning themselves in the cannabis world in some way. So whether it's like uh, geneticists, uh, ancient, ancient DNA geneticists, um, botanists, ethnobotanists. So this is sort of the sciencey areas. And then in medicine, I've talked to psychiatrists, um, sort of a laboratory researchers who work on like mice models and um, drug impairment. Um, I've spoken to public health professionals who are, you know, designing, say, um, public service announcement type things or uh, education campaigns about cannabis in a legal context. And also the growers, uh, the people who, of course, grow cannabis um, uh, and, and other in sort of ancillary businesses. So like people who run labs in order to test substances, um, people who run sort of like marketing firms. Um, so basically a whole broad array of people who are sort of building a life in some way through cannabis, um, whether that be using it or not. <laughs> right, right. That's an interesting way to think about this. So this plant is now sort of contouring all this human activity. Like, mm -hmm. like you said, building a life around a very mm -hmm. a specific plant. Um, okay, so one thing you brought up, which is I think one main reason I want to talk to you, is legalization. So mm -hmm. this has been all the news in New York, New Jersey, and it hasn't happened. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like I've read some accounts on why that is. Um, but yeah, what do you think in general about all of this legalization news? Um, the big <laughs> news a uh, year or two, now two years ago, was it? It was Canada. Mm -hmm. um, and now, you know, there's this idea that the East Coast is going to legalize, the mm -hmm. EU might legalize, or parts of it. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. is this generally good? Are there reasons to be nervous? How can we like in, in a summary way understand what's going on? Uh, so I would say, first of all, it's a good thing if you want to, uh, focus on the question of the war on drugs, um, the question of, uh, you know, bias and incarceration and the role that cannabis plays in that. And just this very simple fact that people are not going to go to prison for having cannabis is like just a great reason for legalizing. Um, but the, 
the, the really important part of legalization that does sort of happen everywhere is that it becomes a legal commodity market. So there is no just decriminalization, right? It becomes a legalization, which means that you have to produce. Uh, essentially, cannabis has to come into a set of capitalist relations that it hasn't ever actually had before on Earth um, in sort of the formal capitalist sense of an economy that we have here. Um, so that's an interesting element that brings in all these questions about labor and law and ownership and property and how is all this going to work out. So I guess the question with legalization is, um, the interesting question for me is how does a, an illegal commodity become a legal one and what are all the sort of tensions and frictions and human problems and values and issues that sort of emerge out of that and how do people uh, deal with it and who deals with it and in what ways. So in terms of those things, so I think it'd be really interesting to, to, to drill down or like help us think through and maybe slow down is the right way to say, mm-hmm. um, you know, what are some of the things we should look out for? Like if I'm an average New Yorker or New, New Jerseyite and I'm reading the news about legalization, what are things that, that could go, um, you know, better or worse? Like what are, what are things I should care about in terms of um, all, all the things you just mentioned? So in terms of things to pay attention to, I mean, some interesting problems that are just sort of everyday issues would be sort of where does stores um, shoot up? Where do people, where, where does the sort of industry uh, actually get like physically located? Um, so, and how does that affect, say, how communities think about their neighborhood, right? Do they want a pot shop in the neighborhood? Um, and how does this play out in, say, public debates? Um, uh, other issues are going to be, of course, um, you know, if you're interested in the cannabis industry, you're going to want to know who's participating in my state. So who's actually able to open, uh, say, a store? Um, who's actually able to grow or not? Will individuals or residents be able to grow it in urban areas? It's really going to depend on the state if um, individuals are able to grow, you know, have a home grow, essentially. Um, My understanding is that most places that have legalized, you can. You can grow um, in your own home. Um, But it's going to have a restriction on a number of things, say, how tall the plant can be, how many plants you can have. Um, and that's usually sort of di- also has another stipulation of how many people are in the house. So say you can have each person in the house can have a certain yeah. number of plants. Would that still be under a medicinal license? Uh, so if there are already uh, medicinal like uh, sets of laws in place from before, say, a, a more broad scale uh, recreational, quote unquote, legalization, usually those things are yeah. just sort of grandfathered and people can just continue using those regulations that they might change a little bit. Um, that's the case in yep. Canada. So people say all across Canada, because it's federally harmonized, if they were in the medical system before, they can just continue using that same system. Um, but no, uh, you can just be sort of a regular user who uses it for whatever reason, um, or maybe you just enjoy growing. Um, and you can totally do that. Um, but there are sort of rules which are interesting <laughs> and they do, uh, they do come up differently in different places. And there are bans, you are right. So for instance, in Quebec, in Canada, you can't grow your own cannabis. But you can buy. But you can buy. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. 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 I was listening to the Brian Lehr show a while ago on WMYC and they were talking about how residents wouldn't be able to grow in New York City. Well, I mean, okay. So there was a big sort of, uh, controversy about this recently that I didn't follow very closely, embarrassingly. Um, but um, essentially, you're right. So there, I think the story was um, sort of big cannabis firms that uh, 
or people who were intending to be big cannabis firms um, were lobbying with uh, the state government in order to actually, yes, have the laws say that individuals can't grow. Um, and this obviously has benefits for businesses who can then sort of have a monopoly on where everything comes from. And if people want their cannabis, then they're going to have to go to the store as opposed to growing for themselves. Of course, the problem then is just enforcement where, you know, um, everybody's been growing in their homes forever already, um, and they're probably still going to keep doing it, uh, whether it says so in the law or not. Um, but of course, that is going to disproportionately affect certain people who, you know, are more visible uh, to surveillance. Um, but yeah, so it's an open question, um, and it's a lot of work to pay attention to the moving parts of every state uh, as they work these things out. And even Massachusetts here, which is legal, is uh, still rolling out things and changing regulations and changing bylaws, like almost by the week. So, well, one minor thing, but just I find this fascinating. Why height? I mean, I know so Canada is, is a tall plant, but why restrict the height? If you're going to let someone grow, say, three plants or whatever. To be honest, it's a good it's a good question. I need to look it up. But so so one thing I can say on that is they don't want the plants to be visible from the street. So man, this is good, this is different per state and per province. But so one thing is, if you keep the plant small enough, then it's not visible; it's inconspicuous. Um, and then the other thing is just yield. They just assume that if it's you know if it's tall, it means it has a certain kind of you know also breadth, and uh, and it's going to produce a lot of product. So um, that's one of the reasons as well. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, because they can grow really tall, and they could also put out a strong scent. I mean, I don't know how I know this. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the scent issue is like an interesting sensory question, um, because I do see a lot of news articles. And even if I go to, say, a public town hall meeting, there will be people who will say, you know, um, this, uh, this, you know, new cannabis greenhouse um, that I live close to is really smelly. Uh, and I hate that. Um, uh, and you'll see a lot of uh, news articles that are sort of reporting on these kinds of dynamics happening, or people are worried about it being really smelly, right. um, which is interesting because there's all kinds of industries that are very smelly, right. um, but people sort of yeah. attach onto this for certain reasons. And so that's something I definitely want to pay attention to as well. Yeah. Also, another stupid question, but is it that smelly? I mean, in, in, indoors. Mm -hmm. So that's the thing is that, um, <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, so yeah. If you're not in the greenhouse, right. it, will it waft? Right. So there are moments of waftiness, um, but it is going to depend on if, say, it's, yes, is it a greenhouse? Is it sort of a hybrid outdoor-indoor greenhouse? Is it a completely kind of like indoor facility? So, for instance, in Canada, where you have colder weather, where people are really investing in like purely indoor facilities, they spend a lot of money on like filtration systems in order to actually not have any smell at all. Mm -hmm. And so part of the sort of, you know, PR sales pitch of a lot of these um, legal companies is to say like, hey, look how much care we're giving to our community by not being smelly. <laughs> um, but yes. And then the, the other question on sort of how long is it smelly and how smelly it is, right? That also has to do with to what extent is the plant actually flowering. And, um, you know, so it's not smelly the whole time that it's growing. There is sort of like a peak time that it is. So, right. Yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah, yeah. This is so. This is great. This is getting the nitty gritty, weird stuff about growing. Yeah. <laughs> Alex, do you know anything about hemp and people growing hemp in the city, and the legality of that, as well as producing CBD, since it seems to be everywhere these days? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, so the um, so there's sort of two questions there that sort of branch out into two questions because um, yeah. 
hemp is such a, well, you know, cannabis in general is such a versatile plant that is used for so many different things. And so hemp especially, yes, is going to be used for CBD production, but also for all the other kinds of things that's a part of like building materials, clothing, textiles, things like this, Um, which is really sort of the industry focus in terms of if you think of the new farm bill that's got a lot of attention in the news. Um, Kentucky, you know, sort of wants to take up the sort of role as being America's hemp producer, right? Um, which is fascinating. Um, so I actually don't know a lot about this. This is sort of like my next project is to think about um, h- how these dif- how these differences are being crafted between a cannabis and a hemp and how these are actually right. articulated through law and regulation. Um, now, the thing about CBD is that CBD can come from all kinds of kinds of cannabis plants so it can come from hemp but it can also just come from what you would see as a more typical marijuana plant it really all depends how it's been bred and it depends on how they've been yeah how they've been crossbred hybridized um and now with genetic manipulation that's happening more and more i'll say i i don't know about hemp being grown in the city my understanding is hemp is really sort of like a big scale cash crop um, I'm not sure the extent to which people would have, you know, like a small kind of like little hemp collection in their backyard. I imagine it's probably true. It's possible. I, I imagine. Uh, it's it's a very tall plant and it actually takes a lot of work to, um, you know, once it's to, to process the plant for its fibers. It's actually like a intensive job. Um, but I mean, I, I totally imagine people would probably be doing it in their backyard. I don't see why not if they have a reason. Yeah, are they going to extract the CBD? I mean, these are all yeah. industrial scale operations. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's really interesting you mentioned the hemp in Kentucky. That's something I'd, I'd read about, too. As, as far as I understand, the Farm Bill legalized all hemp growing, but, right, it's not necessarily clear that everyone's interested. But, like, the Hudson Valley, there's farmers interested. Hmm. And, yeah, Kentucky. And as I understand it, in the South, in the West, a lot of it, or whatever you consider Kentucky, um, it's hmm. to replace tobacco, right? It's this right. idea people were growing a crop that's a field crop. Right. That's not for eating, but for materials. Um, but then it was kind of stigmatized, and mm. now suddenly something else has been destigmatized. I think that's mm. really interesting. Mm. Not sure it's anything with cities, but it's just um, I don't know. It's something I thought about. Um, but yeah, CBD. So can we get like a sound bite? Do you have any thoughts? <laughs> have you tried CBD? It's first of all, CBD is cannabinol. Is that correct? Can I, I guess. Or can, how do you say it? I. This is my pronunciation. Is um, oh now I'm going to say it wrong. Uh, <laughs> cannab- cannabidiol. 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 Okay. Yes. This is the Canadian pronunciation that you hear at the medical conferences. So. <laughs> hey, medical conference sounds legit. Um, you know, I write about lettuce and stuff, so that's, you know, uh, I, I believe you. Uh, okay. And what, so what is CBD and sort of why is that all the rage? Why is this um, everywhere at every bodega all of a sudden? Yeah. So this is a really fascinating question, and I have maybe a few, a few like, anecdotal kind of stories to tell, maybe ethnographic stories. But um, so CBD is a molecule, chemical, whatever you want to call it, that the a phytochemical that the plant produces, that all cannabis plants have the potential to produce. Um, hemp, it's not that hemp does more so, it's just that um, the kinds of varieties we have of hemp have much less THC and have uh, in turn produced more CBD through time. Um, so they tend to be more CBD-rich plants. Um, but you can actually increase CBD production in you know a more typical marijuana plant as well. But so basically, um, both of these molecules, whether you think THC, which is the one that gets you high, or CBD, which is the one that sort of doesn't get you high in the sort of colloquial sense of a kind of head high, um, a kind of euphoria, um, these are both called cannabinoid molecules. Um, They're a class of molecules called a terpene, which is a 
which means these are not an alkaloid, which is sort of what you would think uh, of morphine is, of opioids, um, of nicotine. So it's a different kind of chemical, basically, class of chemical. Um, so CBD, uh, it's really interesting that it's become very popular. And my sort of interpretation of this, this is my early analysis, um, is that the craze around CBD is precisely that it's safe in the sense that um, it's easy to sell to people because it doesn't get you high, um, but it still has the medical promise. Um, but sort of the notion that THC is not medicinal and CBD is medicinal is kind of false. Um, there's plenty of people who use sort of the actual psychoactive high of THC and the sort of bodily effects of THC for medical purposes. Um, it isn't sort of exclusive to CBD. Right. Um, the other thing about CBD that's similar to THC that makes it a very easy sort of commodity to very quickly explode in the scene is that it's very easy to, you know, dilute into a kind of oil substance that you can put in foods, you can put in gummies, you can literally just put the oil uh, in your mouth, you can um, rub it on your skin. Um, it's extremely versatile in terms of how you can use it. So that's, it's, you know, it's an, it's an easy product to sort of ramp up in the way that we've seen in terms of how people can access it. Um, is it snake oil is kind of the question you get a lot. Um, I think, I think that's an interesting question because I think cannabis, what makes cannabis interesting is it pushes back on kind of, you know, mainstream medical models in a way, um, in that it kind of does sort of straddle this line between, is it kind of a medicine in the sense that we would think of a traditional pharmaceutical being a medicine, or is it what we would call maybe like an alternative medicine, right? A plant-based medicine. And it kind of, uh, it kind of throws those questions up in the air and, you know, makes people who are, uh, maybe more inclined to go, you know, the biomedical route, um, be sort of intrigued by this, right? Um, and I think what's it, what, what makes CBD different from, say, other food trends like, you know, acai berry or like other kinds of foods that you can eat that presumably prevent a risk of something for you if you incorporate them into your everyday diet, um, something like CBD actually does have like a real kind of drug effect in the sense that you can feel something happening in your body. So especially if you, you know, reach a high enough milligram dosage of whatever you're taking, um, you know, I think there's a, an, a kind of objective agreement amongst people that I can feel something that isn't a placebo, say, um, that where, you know, where you don't get that, say, by eating, you know, the right amount of chia seeds or something. So, you know, the extent to which it's kind of a snake oil or just another food trend, I don't think it is. I think it does have a kind of very noticeable, like physical effect that people build into their lives, whether it's through pain management or whatever. Um, but it's not going to be a cure-all. The, the thing that CBD is really about is, you know, building it into a therapeutic regime that people sort of use day in, day out. Um, and so it becomes part of like a, a routinized form of self-therapy -ther as opposed to like, you know, a one-time pill or something like that. Right. Yeah. Um, one sort of anecdote that I hear from people who use it a lot for pain is that, you know, they'll take it for months on end. Um, and they don't really think it does anything, but as soon as they stop taking it, they have tremendous pain and they realize sort of how they felt before they were taking it. Um, so it's sort of something that's, you know, it's low key in terms of like, uh, it's, it's functioning. Um, but people seem to be getting a good benefit for it. Yeah. That's interesting. I think that says a lot about our time that the perfect drug for millennials is like <laughs> so low key and functional and pragmatic that mm -hmm. you barely notice it working, mm -hmm. but, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. you know. 
Mm-hmm. But and, it's not the it's not the cocaine eighties, you know what I mean? Right, right, right. And, but it's interesting because it it can be used in in so many ways, right? You can have these little tiny ten milligram gummies that might like you know help uh, like just take the edge off maybe a headache. Um, but there are other uses of it where you can take say five hundred milligrams and it can just totally sink you into a chair um, and really sort of produce intense you know uh, anesthetic kinds of effects. Um, which, you know, a lot of people are grabbing onto as being an interesting option for, um, you know, prescribing something like a a high CBD medicine before moving them on to, say, other kinds of harder pain medicines, quote unquote, um, to try that out, see if it's helpful for them until they try something different. Um, So So how much is this related to the opioid epidemic? I mean, is part of it trying to um, find alternatives, basically, and saying, yeah, it's a terpene, not an alkaloid, or... Yeah, it's an interesting question to the extent to which like the CBD craze and the opioid epidemic are like synergistic. I mean, I I don't think CBD is super popular because of the opioid epidemic. I think that's just kind of like an interesting chance alignment that's happened um, because CBD has been sort of popular in medical cannabis advocacy for a while. Um, but I do think why CBD has become so popular is it's a way of easing people into the the idea of marijuana and cannabis without them having to say, get high. Right. Right. Um, and so there's interesting sort of cultural and value questions about why does a drug like that sort of become acceptable as opposed to THC. Yeah, it was amazing for a moment. It seemed like there was CBD being used everywhere. Like why put CBD in your latte? Um, But I guess it fits well into this millennial culture identity that we're talking about. But I was wondering, who were the main players or companies behind that big push of CBD being used as a commonplace additive? Is this canopy or, you know, who's growing the CBD? So this is the thing. Nobody knows where their CBD comes from, um, to some extent. It's so heterogeneous. Um, You know, you can go on Amazon and you can, like, order CBD capsules, And it just, I mean, it says CBD on it. I mean, maybe it is, right? Um, So a lot of the debate right now is figuring out how do we actually build in some kind of accountability about where the stuff is coming from? Is it actually CBD to what, like how much, um, you know, does the label match the product in terms of, you know, the quantity of the substance that's in the product? Um, You know, there's all kinds of, and there's so many ways of getting it. Um, And and like I said, it doesn't have to be like these big hemp fields, right? Like people can kind of have your classic underground cannabis grow that are all CBD plants. Um, So for instance, I tried uh, like uh, CBD sort of joints that I just ordered from Nevada and they just sent it to me in the mail. And because it doesn't have THC in it, it sort of operates in this legal gray area where it's not quite illegal and it's not legal either. So, but nobody really enforces anything. Um, So you can just sort of order it online and it's like actual flour. Were they good? They were great. Yeah. They kind of, uh, they definitely produce an effect. I mean, to the extent in which that effect is just um, oxygen deprivation by me smoking, I don't know, but (laughs) I think it is, uh, um, no, it's definitely a noticeable effect. Um, The one thing I will mention on your point about them putting CBD in the lattes, um, I think, you know, if you read a lot of sort of takes on, you know, all of our different media sources that we can read, you know, there are a lot of critiques of like, you know, Obviously, this is really big because you can make a lot of money and it's a new way to make a new product and create a market. Um, And that's true. But I think that's just sort of like too easy of a critique or an analysis. Right. So like there's other interesting things going on that is more than just making money. Um, You know, like we can ask, like, why is there this sort of societal urge to like find, you know, um, uh, uh, 
a crutch for our anxieties um, in kind of an interesting, safe way. You know, there's there's also kind of like a societal yearning for this drug as much as there is um, a market uh, that's being produced for the sake of making money. Right. So there's other things happening, too. Um, And I think. And I think there's a positive spin you can you can put on this and that people, you know, it's part of a broader movement for people to care about where their drugs come from. You know, like when you when you get a drug from the pharmacy, you know, you just it's synthesized in a lab somewhere, I guess. Right. Um, you don't really know much about its production or who made it or where it comes from. But with cannabis, even CBD, you know, there is kind of an interest in wondering, you know, who made this? How was it grown? Where does it come from? Um, so I think that's interesting and it feeds into, you know, questions about organic food and, you know, all these other broader issues about where do the things we put in our body come from. Um, but I think it's, it's one about drugs that uh, hasn't quite, you know, hit the mainstream in terms of, say, food has. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Root 11 dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate, an incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Root 11 potato chips believe comfort food can be just that. Know where your food comes from. To learn more, visit rt11.com. It intersects with food to this point about it. Yeah. CBD is almost a functional food or yeah. fortification ingredient. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting when you mention it that way, because I think of those companies as as actually very reliable just because they're so heavily regulated. I'm, you know, mm. I'm not saying that they wouldn't get away with more if they weren't tightly regulated. But um, I think when you buy small molecule drugs, you sort of know they come from chemical you know, synthesis. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And maybe what's one of the things that's interesting in terms of longer term trends is, is generally suspicion of any kind of corporate or chemical mm-hmm. anything. Mm-hmm, so, you mm-hmm. know, CBD, THC, any, anything coming from cannabis is going to be seen as a better alternative. Um, and then, yeah, it also plays into the trend of now you can tell stories about the artisan artisanal production. And then there's, you know, and there's also the home growing thing, which is this thing. It's actually pretty cognate um, to kombucha, which is another, you know, major functional food um, superstar of the last 10 years. But you can grow it at home, but you also can spend a lot of money to buy it from a store. And right. I know lots of people, I've done both, and I know lots of people have done both. Right. And I actually am wondering, do you think that's generally going to be true of cannabis? So sort of, you know, you might, might also say craft beer. Lots of people are going to try it out themselves or try their friends and mm-hmm. there's that desire to know but they also are going to trust you know Snoop Dogg's version or mm-hmm. they're going to trust mm-hmm. um, you know whatever Rogue or Terrapin you know that, that equivalent in cannabis right um, is that sort of, is cannabis able to build on the beer model so to what extent do you think people are really going to take up growing at home as opposed to going to a store yeah I mean I'm curious about growing at home versus I mean it seems like there's a tension there between growing at home crunchiness I want to know where everything comes from Versus yeah. the very slick branding. I mean, yeah. Snoop Dogg's very good at selling stuff, and right. he has a huge stake at this point. He's made a lot of money even before legalization of the East Coast of the United States right. by, by buying, a, you know, participating right. in kind of the cannabis economy. Yeah. So I guess one thing I can say is just because it's very timely, you know, this week there's been all kinds of articles popping up in Canadian media about the fact that 
the market, quote unquote, isn't transitioning to the legal space as sort of quickly or as efficiently as they imagined. In fact, still like 60% of people are just buying from where they've got it before. Um, and so one element of that is not, um, you know, a relationship with the plant per se, but it's just a relationship with people. Like people have a dealer who is not uh, gangs and, and guns. It's, you know, this guy they know down the street who's been their neighbor for 20 years who grows in his basement. Right. Um, so the one interesting thing about the cannabis plant is in many ways it resists the kind of commoditization that a kind of capitalist set of relations requires in order for an industry to work. Um, so this question of will people be growing at home, I think absolutely. One thing is just it's an easy plant to grow. It, you know, it, you can sort of put a lot of effort into it and really set up really intense dynamic setups and really care about, you know, the specificities of what you're feeding it and your timing of when you're feeding it. And um, But at the same time, it's also possible to just, you know, toss a seed in a pot and throw it in your backyard and let it sit in the sun. Uh, and see what happens, um, and it'll produce something for you. Um, so it's an easy plant to grow uh, in a sense that I think it may be more sort of approachable and accessible than craft beer or winemaking, I think. I mean, I've never done those things. Is it really that easy to grow, though? I mean, you need a female plant. People want a certain variety for it to have a certain potency. You need a certain size bud. It almost seems with home growing, you wouldn't get the same product as if you went to a specific dispensary. Since cannabis growing has become so specialized, it seems like it would deter people to keep growing if they don't get as good of a product like what they would get from the dispensary. Or will it be like what wife mentioned, like craft beer, where people know it might not be as good as if they went to a brewery or a dispensary? but they're just really interested in learning how to do it themselves. What are, what's the question of like quality and um, how is that assessed and how do people find that? How do people find what, what is good cannabis, I guess. Right. And is it something that people yeah. can just do on their own terms? Um, yeah. Yeah. I think, so I think one, one, one part of the answer is that more people probably will try growing because it is growing a plant and people are, you know, at least somewhat familiar with gardening, say, um, and it seems like something they can maybe do. And the fact that it's legal um, makes it, you know, that much more interesting as something to try as a hobby. Um, and it's also, yeah. as you probably know, increasingly easy to like, you know, hop on the Internet and order all kinds of complex growing supplies with yeah. all kinds of instructions on how to do it. And, you know, once yeah. you have once you have something set up, say, in, in your basement or in your garage or whatever, um, you know, once you have kind of a system in place that's really routinized, it's not too complex in terms of, you know, what you feed it, um, you know, when you, yeah. you know, at what cycles you stop, when do you cut it, these sorts of things. Do you think it would be more hydroponic growing or soil-based growing? Because, you know, like when, when you research online, a lot of times, you know, if you're looking up how to grow cannabis, it's hydroponic growing. And when we talk to a lot of people who just grow hydroponically in general, um, they speak about like, you know, creating certain recipes, which are this certain amount of light or food for a certain crop that's like pretty much dialed in. I mean, I'm wondering if that might make it a lot easier for the first time grower. 
Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, that's going to be something I'm going to look at in my dissertation research fieldwork is sort of, you know, what are the trends of what people are sort of attracted to in terms of how they want to grow? Um, but, you know, people that I've talked to now are definitely doing the hydroponic, if only for the sake of not having to deal with dirt. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, back to your question on quality, though, there's, there's you know, a huge, you know, there's a lot of people who will say, you know, I want it to be grown in, in the earth. Um, and this has, you know, particular kinds of um, material qualities that I want in the cannabis, right? Um, and I think, uh, and you hear that a lot from people who are outdoor growers who are really sort of adamant about having, you know, the plant in the ground or, you know, the plant literally being fed by the actual sun and things like this. Um, so, uh, yeah, there's there's going to be like a, a variety of ways of uh, that people are going to approach it and it is going to be you know, market-based, what's affordable, what's not, what kind of, you know, is something that people feel they can do in terms of time and space and things. Um, but now on your, on your, on the broader question of sort of quality, I mean, the interesting thing in, in Canada right now is that people are finding the legal cannabis that they can buy is just not good quality. <laughs> um, it just isn't up to sort of the standards of what people have just been getting their whole lives. Um, from, from, you know, the quote unquote black market. Um, and, um, uh, and then the other issue is, uh, price, right? So right now it's exceptionally expensive, uh, to go to a store and get your cannabis. Um, and so this is like limiting from a class perspective, especially for people who, you know, use weekly, daily, um, you know, it gets really expensive if you want to be sort of have a kind of cannabis habit, you know, to the extent that people have other kinds of substances that they use. Um, uh, and so the question of the stores and are people going to want to just go to the stores? I think, yes, the, the convenience, uh, the convenience option is is so important and that, you know, people maybe don't want to have to spend their lives thinking about how to grow and keeping track of a plant. And so, yes, going to the store is going to be a huge segment of, you know, the market. Um, uh, but the price is really limiting right now in Canada because the prices are just exorbitantly high. Like it's, you know, you pay $70 for 3.5 grams. You pay that about here in Massachusetts too. Whereas, you know, in the black market, you know, you could pay 25 bucks for the same thing. Um, and it's much higher quality. Um, so, yeah. So it's it's definitely a price issue right now in terms of, you know, why it's not transitioning to a legal market as quickly as people wanted. Um, but, you know, most sort of experts or people who spend a lot of time, you know, studying the industry will say it's just a long term process and it will transition eventually. Um, so who is growing right now? Can you talk a little about the transition in terms of legalization and labor? Maybe Canada is a kind of case or California or wherever you've looked into so who's growing now? How does that look different than in the past? And what might happen in the future in terms of who's growing? So why basically weren't all the best growers picked up, you know, by California companies? Okay, yeah. so so I have a few answers. <laughs> um, who's growing now? So in Canada, especially, who is growing in terms of a legal market are um, dominantly people who have had lots of capital have lots of capital um so you get uh you get sort of 
entrepreneurs who just decided to just jump into the space and who have have the money to do so. But you also have um, people who have been set up previously in Canada's medical system. So you actually had sort of already, they call them LPs, which is legal producers. You already had sort of legal producing companies that already kind of had an infrastructure that was relatively robust and with, you know, high capital and, you know, a greenhouse and things like this. Um, and of course, the, the sort of dominant statistic is that, you know, across North America, it's something like 85% of ownership is basically white men. And, um, and so a place like Colorado, for instance, didn't take these questions of, um, equity into consideration in producing their regulations. And so basically the Colorado market is essentially just all like white big capital, essentially. Um, and it has excluded all kinds of people from participating. Um, now, Massachusetts, on the other hand, is sort of the opposite end of the spectrum. And they've been rolling their things at the sort of the legal market out really slowly and t thinking really carefully about um, how they are setting up, you know, uh, accessibility programs for groups who've been disenfranchised by um, illegality um, and also, you know, setting up sort of regulatory and licensing procedures that are more accessible for people who don't have the capital up front to pay these, you know, exorbitant licensing fees to pay a lawyer to go through all the forms with that and things like this. Um, so that is to say who is growing is diverse, but there are trends towards a certain demographic, both class and race based and gender based as well. Um, and now an interesting sort of tidbit that, that, uh, that comes up is a lot of these, um, underground growers or black market growers, um, who are these sort of experts who produce this amazing quality cannabis. Um, so some of them have been hired by legal corporations, but, you know, there's only so many of them who can only hire so many people, right? So there's, you know, thousands of people who, who aren't, you know, hired into the legal system. And now these people have all kinds of capital, but they can't invest it because it's, you know, dark capital. They have cash. Um, so, for instance, I was at like a Massachusetts public hearing a few weeks ago and a man there said, you know, I have all these friends who have got like half a million dollars and they want the opportunity to open up a store uh, or to open up, say, you know, a, a growing facility somewhere. But they can't do it because it's not legitimate cash. Um, so like these sorts of people are essentially just like blocked out because they aren't, you know, they fall through the cracks of regulation, essentially. They just aren't, they basically don't exist in like the scheme of how things are being produced. Um, I don't know if that helps with your question, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm just, that's really curious. Cause then how do you ever resolve that? Like you right. need, it's hard cause you couldn't just accept tons of cash, um, to grandfather in cannabis businesses cause that mm -hmm. could be exploited. Mm -hmm. by other, you know, organized crime or whatever. Mm -hmm. But yeah, how do you, have you, I guess, um, oh, that was a question I had. Have you seen success stories? So have there been kind of more equitable legalization processes that are, that are kind of upheld as like, you know, the good version of legalization? Yeah, I think it's just so too early to tell, um, especially because I'm really focused on Canada and my own research and like everything in Canada is just so new right now. Um, so, I mean, some, some interesting, maybe, you know, exceptional examples is, say, um, you know, one Indigenous community in uh, the rural parts of Ontario have kind of produced their own, like, completely vertically integrated cannabis economy, where they have sort of a dispensary and a growing facility and a laboratory. Wow. And they're able to essentially tick off all the sort of health the Health Canada boxes that they need, all the regulatory things that they need, and they essentially have their own sort of self-sustaining cannabis economy. Um, so that's an interesting example. Um, 
Uh, other example, it's almost like casinos. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's there's interesting. Um, so so like the differences between Canada and U.S. is you know, the sort of racial politics in the U.S. is very focused on kind of like a black and white racial binary, literally, um, for good reason. Um, but in Canada, uh, it's more of an indigenous politics in terms of race. Um, and so, I mean, indigenous peoples have been using cannabis just like everybody else uh, for, you know, since they've been here, since we've been here, since cannabis has been brought here. And um, but so they've actually been different sort of uh, Native American groups in Canada have been working to, you know, ensure that they're able to sort of have their own sovereign say over how cannabis is going to be regulated within their communities. And that's sort of been allowed so far, which has been interesting. Um, so that was sort of one example. Um, I can get, give the name for you to actually like write down somewhere, but yeah, what is the, I, I don't remember the oh, name, gotcha. but uh, I can like picture the space. I just don't remember the name. Where did cannabis originate from? Yeah. So, I mean, origin questions are always extremely complicated, um, but yeah, the, the general consensus is that it's sort of the Eurasian mountains, um, sort of like the west, the northwest of China, and then down into sort of all throughout the Middle East and down into India. Um, and then you also sort of have a more northern strain that moves up through Siberia and into Russia and into northern Europe, and that's sort of your classical hemp. Um, so basically you have two divergent plant uh, families that are both cannabis. One is sort of north, one is south. This is sort of the typical narrative, basically. Um, and so, yeah, so the... It originates kind of in the mountains of China, basically, um, about 50,000 years ago or so. Yeah. And it's still wild? You can still find the so sort the, of so wild samples? This is the interesting question. Is um, So I, I do actually talk to botanists a lot who study this, and they say there is no there is no longer wild cannabis to the extent that we can, like, you know, up to our scientific standards, be able to claim that this is wild or not. So they have sort of a middle ground, which is feral. So it's probably that it's been in human contact at some point, but maybe now it's growing on its own. Um, but it's mostly assumed that all sort of hemp and cannabis that exists out there has had some kind of human interaction in some way. And so there really isn't like a wild type cannabis. That's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. So it's up there as a kind of major crop that, that humans have really mm -hmm. um, directed the evolution of. We've really brought different places in the same way that, that Teosinte is... I yes. guess it's probably still wild somewhere in Mexico, but generally, like, maize has grown all over the world. Um, right. So that's, yeah, that's huge, man. I, I guess in terms of cities uh, versus rural groves. Yeah, interesting um, question. Greenhouses yeah. versus, you know, I mean, it's not necessarily dwelling on hydroponics or soil, but I think that, that gets to this question of, yeah, method. Um, I mean, one question I have is, has that changed through legalization, or does that seem to be changing? Mm. Um I mean, yeah. Have you looked much at the sort of actual grow methods? Yeah. So that's an interesting question. This ur the urban rural divide of like where cannabis kind of exists in its like human ecological niche, I guess. Right. Um, but the answer would be all over the place because um, it is just it's so impossible to give you an answer of like where cannabis has been grown and where it's now being grown because it's really just kind of been grown in so many different diverse ways almost precisely because it's been illegal, right? People have really had to kind of find the place that they could do it. And if it was in a rural spot or if it was in an urban spot, um, they're going to do it. So people have figured out how to do it in both places. Um, now, the 
in Canada, say, for instance, uh, the sort of legal operations have been definitely rural spaces, um, primarily just because it's been cheaper to buy land. <laughs> I, I mean, that's my assumption anyway. Um, it's easier to sort of, you know, have the land is already been regulated for agriculture and things like this. Um, uh, but uh, my understanding, though, in Colorado is that, say, for instance, a lot of the old industrial parks have been sort of renovated to be cannabis growing facilities. So you have a sort of more of an urban action right. happening in Colorado. Um, and then, you know, California is traditionally famous for having these sort of big cannabis grows up in the forests of the Emerald Triangle. Um, so they kind of have a, like a whole sort of outdoor, indoor ecosystem out there as well. Um, and then, of course, the, the classical uh, image of sort of the underground basement grow with all the lights, um, which was essentially an innovation born th because of uh, uh, prohibition. So cannabis essentially went underground under sort of, uh, you know, halogens and LEDs eventually um, and hydroponics underground because it was illegal. Um, and that's certainly going to continue because, um, you know, as we were talking earlier, in order to get the kind of high THC, high potency, like, you know, big buds, the kind of quality that people are used to is really a, comes from the possibility of growing it underground in these like highly controlled spaces. Right. Um, so. Where does it come from? All different kinds of places. <laughs> is it being growing gr growing in urban environments? Absolutely. You're going to see it on balconies. You're going to see it in backyards. And yes, the sort of um, there is a growth of also greenhouses and outdoor spaces as well in rural areas. Yeah. Gotcha. So could you see that in Massachusetts? The sort of um, industrial building turned into a grow operation. I mean, I feel like I have seen that. But. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, to, to, uh, embarrassingly, I don't know a lot about actually the sort of growing context in Massachusetts. That's something I'm going to look at this summer. I've really just been sort of looking at policy and health questions. Um, but the thing about Massachusetts is that it's very, you know, it's um, it's new still right now in terms of where the legal uh, yeah. legal market exists. Um, so, for, but there is, for instance, the interesting thing that does exist in Massachusetts is the Farm Bug Co-op, they're called. Um, and they're sort of a non-profit, uh, almost like a trading economy of cannabis for enthusiast cannabis growers who do grow in their homes, um, you know, just sort of in urban residential areas. Um, and they sort of help each other set up growing environments in their backyards and in their basements. And then they sort of like, you know, trade product with each other and things like this. Um, so there, there's interesting sort of like urban you know, farming communities that are not based on profit maximization and things like this uh, around cannabis, um, right. which is interesting. So I'm going to try and follow that? those. Were they doing that before legalization? Uh, I think because it was, yes. Okay. So for instance, there's absolutely people who have just been growing cannabis without the need to make money and just sharing it with friends and family. Right. Um, but I think the fact that it's been illegal, you know, really the people who are going to be growing a lot are going to have to be doing it to make money um, because that's sort of, you know, the payoff for doing something that could throw you in prison, really. So <laughs> so there's a tipping point where you have to be good at it to make it worth exactly. the sort of risk. Or the exactly. Yeah. That is interesting. Like you said, cultures of cannabis. I mean, yeah. I guess we talk a lot about food yeah. cultures and how different cuisines yeah. have become faddish in the United States and in certain mm -hmm. cities in the United mm -hmm. States. Um, but it, I guess it's probably true, right, for this this plant and its uses and and i guess cbd going back to that is kind of an example where it's not something i think i i really knew about right um i certainly had used right. the, the plant in other ways but it never occurred to me that it was this you know anti-inflammatory i should be putting in my tea or whatever right 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 um <laughs> so yeah i don't know i guess any final thoughts unless melissa do you have any other questions but you know final thoughts on where you see 
cultures of cannabis heading or I don't know things we haven't mentioned I mean that's the that most, the major that's the absolute most fascinating question for me um, like I mean anybody who's been using cannabis has always been using CBD because it's there it's in the plant um, yeah. it's it's interacting with your THC and it always has been um, now there's just been a focus on extracting it as just on, on, on its own terms right um, but um, so yeah the cultures of cannabis question is so interesting because um, you know, there wasn't always a cannabis culture in the U.S. Like, basically, you know, how we imagine it now is people just using cannabis kind of as a regular kind of substance, like coffee, didn't really exist until the 60s. So even in these sort of, like, reefer madness histories of, like, the, you know, the 20s and 30s and 40s about sort of this menace of cannabis, there really wasn't even that, like, people didn't even really know what it was. and mm. It wasn't really that widespread use, right? Um, so even just the fact that we have a kind of society that uses this substance like is kind of uh, unique in some ways and historically unique. But so, okay, yes, cannabis cultures. Um, something that I'm really interested in is why do people use cannabis and um, how do they use it? Um, and these things are going to be, you know, uh, diverse and they're going to be cut across with questions of race and class and gender again. And, you know, so for instance, I have, I spend a lot of time with activists in Canada and they love to smoke cannabis together to just get through the absolute like terrible hardship that is like doing activism on um, violence. They do violence against women activism. And that's sort of part of their scholarship as part of their everyday life. And cannabis is really the way they all get together to sort of like just deal with the troubles of doing this. And so cannabis is like this, you know, it's medicinal, it's social, and it's just part of their routine of like being an activist. Um, but, you know, I think there's other people who don't use it for those reasons. It's purely for the sort of sensory pleasure. It's for enhancing sex. It's for like, so even, you know, we can talk about cannabis as a drug that you use to get high, but, you know, the reasons for that high and the kind of the effectiveness of that high for certain problems is different for different kinds of people. And I'm sort of interested in how yeah. that plays out and, you know, how do people have a relationship with cannabis in, in relation to why they're using it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it makes me think, because it's one of the most written about plants, most designed mm. about plants. I yeah. mean, it sort of has a color scheme, you know, rainbow color scheme associated mm. with it. It's kind of associated with other specific cultures. The United States are kind of, you know, fetishized in a way, like mm. Jamaican culture. Right. Um, it's it's sort of associated with certain ha habits like binge eating and yeah. there's movies and and this whole time it's been illegal for almost you know mm -hmm. even in California for most of the history of like you said this, roughly the 60s let's say the 90s yeah. you have this massive cultural production on a plant that theoretically no one could get and no one should know anything about because it's illegal <laughs> and yet everyone knows about it and talks about it all the time there's right. tons of songs about it right. and so it reminds me of, like that Borges story sect of the phoenix where you know you all become members of the sect at some point and no one has to explain it to you <laughs> and it's just it's like a thinly veiled metaphor for sex it's like this yeah. it, it's it's he's making fun in a way of, of this puritanical idea that we can all do something and not talk about it right um right and i guess that's kind of my big final question is well okay if we legal, if this does become legal broadly yeah. in at yeah. least north america that you maybe elsewhere yeah does that diminish you know does it, <laughs> i guess it's unanswerable in a way mm -hmm. uh, but but how does that change something that where its power has, has come in part from its illegality absolutely and i think also its political power comes from its illegality in the sense that like you know from the counterculture onwards like cannabis was like 
you know, it's a plant through which people made claims about like capitalism, about like imperialism, about prison abolition. And so what happens when this, you know, punk drug, if you want to call it that, you know, like many other kinds of drugs, but, you know, especially cannabis because it's so ubiquitous, like you say, um, what happens when it becomes sort of legalized and it kind of becomes mainstream and it becomes, you know, it becomes uncool almost in a sense, right? Um, yeah. And it can lose its attachment to these kinds of like political movements that it has been attached to. Um, but it also stays attached to them. And that's kind of what I'm following is, you know, what are the political tensions when this very kind of, you know, fraught drug that's attached to so many values has to become a kind of capitalist commodity. Yeah. Um, and, you know, what kinds of tensions arise out of that? And what are the sort of, uh, what, are the, what, what are the stakes of that happening and for who? Yeah, um, and that is like a culture's question, right? Yeah. yeah so it's what, what happens when a youth drug becomes a boomer thing? You know, when it's <laughs> when your dad can can smoke weed with you, it's like, is Absolutely. it still cool? Um, is it still the resistance? You know. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, okay. So I think we're basically out of time. That's cool. But is there anything? Thank you so much. It's been really great. You can follow me on Twitter at cannabis sts, cannabis science and technology studies. We should really get our, our friend Alex back, who was so gracious. Um, it was a great conversation, and maybe uh, he'd have time to talk again in the near future. But for now, I feel like you know uh, this this episode still has a lot of great content, um, a lot of really relevant like analytical thoughts, like big ideas, concepts um, that are not specific to individual laws. So we should talk about you know what's going on. Um, but I think it's a good episode anyway. The, you know the marijuana folks that I've met when I've I've gone to a couple of these conferences. Um, in order to to think about it in terms of ag tech and urban ag and they're really sophisticated like they have really strong internet communities and like they really know what's going on with the law they like basically all seem like lawyers compared to no offense but you know when i talk to tomato growers or something we're much more focused on sort of you know it's a commodity it's it's like farming uh so yeah i i don't know that much about it but i would not be surprised um you, you know if people were very up to the minute because a lot of it i think is lobbying you know they have a lobby they go to albany and they say hey here's what we want here's why it's reasonable and here is the economic impact and that is something you see reflected in what cuomo has proposed which is this is about you know job creation and even in normal times that's kind of catnip for politicians but obviously with the pandemic um you know it makes sense to say yeah like you know, basically smoking weed is the least of our problems as a society, right? And also everybody's so stressed out, <laughs> traumatized from COVID. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but um, but also, um, so cannabis sales will have an 18% tax on them as well. And so the whole thing is, where will this revenue from the taxes go to? Um, and that's been a big thing that they're kind of talking about. Um, and it's also interesting. Um, so this is, totally it's not off topic but um wife have you watched murder mountain on netflix do you know the show yeah that show is uh was fascinating to me i thought it was it was such a weird interesting mix of kind of like yeah like murder mystery true crime but also there is that sort of anthropological gaze at these uh sort of libertarian cannabis growers in northern california and just as someone who enjoys learning about niche communities i mean these folks are like basically living off the grid growing tons and tons of cannabis uh and because it's still federally, you know, illegal, it's like they're they're up against kind of an interesting mix of of uh, antagonists. Um, as I recall, I haven't watched in a couple of years, um, but yeah, I, I did watch that show. Yeah, and and uh, the interesting point of 
or one of the interesting points of that show is that marijuana is starting to get legalized. And so what is happening to the small farmer once it get legal once it gets legalized? And that's something that we talked to Alex about of how does the how does the culture shift when cannabis gets legalized? Who still grows it? Um, why do they grow it? What do people still want to use it? Do they not want to use it? That kind of thing. So also from a grower's perspective, I think that show starts to kind of talk about just a little bit of like, can these growers even grow it anymore? Like a lot of them were like, you're killing us. Like we cannot like, like, um, you know, for the, the, what was it? Um, I don't know if they were actually talking about the war against drugs, but this idea of like kind of the feds coming in didn't really work to stop them from growing, but actually legalizing marijuana made them stop growing because they simply couldn't afford to grow it anymore. Well, yeah, that's the big fear behind, um, you know, that that's the fear leading up to legislation like this, which is there'll be a very unequal legalization process so that um, entrepreneurs who can get capital will be able to grow a lot of cannabis, but someone who's already been growing small scale um, illicitly will not be able, they won't have as a clear pathway to market. You know, they won't be able to like invest, expand, they'll basically be gobbled up um, and at best, you know, end up working for some giant company because there's already some really giant companies that have positioned themselves to sort of swoop in. And this, this a lot of the stuff we talk about with Alex, uh, but, but yeah, I do think, um, that's something I want to look at. I want to scrutinize what Cuomo is explicitly saying about pathways for entrepreneurs um, in communities that have been most harmed by cannabis prohibition. So there's there's language to this effect saying, hey, we're aware of of um, the extremely unequal nature of like policing around cannabis uh, and who has access to capital. But yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see what is specifically being proposed. Um, and it's just, it, it's funny on my radar, at least it was just not, I, I sort of didn't pay much attention to it because there's so much else happening in the news. Um, but it is, you know, broadly, I think a little sliver of hope. It's some good news that, um, which of course comes with, yeah, as you mentioned, all these questions, all these attendant concerns, but at least, you know, um, maybe it will further sort of move cannabis out of the realm of something uh, that that's illegal and associated with sort of criminality and move it into the realm of just yet another plant. And we can have sort of more sane conversations about, okay, well, what is, you know, what are the benefits of this plant? Who gets to grow it? How much should it cost? Yeah. Yeah. And one of the other things that's interesting is that legalizing marijuana can um, bring 300 um, ad or raise 300 million a year, which is kind of from, I guess, from taxes. So, or the general business. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That seems low. I mean, I feel like it's going to be a huge market if it's legal in New York and plus it it has to pressure other States too. Right. I would imagine. So it's going to be hopefully uh, you know, cascade effect, but, but again, we, we don't know, not making predictions, just uh, spitballing based on some of the things we discussed with Alex. Yeah. Over a year ago. Wow. Yeah. So it's interesting, like in a year, I mean, they've been trying to legalize this for a while. I think Cuomo was trying to legalize it last year too, but it kind of fell apart. And finally with the effect of COVID and our huge, and they have huge effect on the budget and how much, you know, New York is in the red that, um, they're like, okay, we're, we're finally going to do this. Yeah, and I know State Senator Liz Kruger has been trying for a while and has introduced uh, legislation that did not advance last year, but I think this is, um, I, I believe this is similar. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see what politicians change their minds. Um, 
I feel like it's it is a little similar to me to the urban agriculture bill, where in theory everyone's behind it, but then it never happens year after year after year, and it's like, well, I don't understand how you guys can all be in, it's sort of in favor of something in the abstract, and then like it just doesn't move forward. Um, but yeah, I don't know. This actually makes a lot of money, and we need money in the state. They're like, okay, let's do this from the business aspect. So. Yeah. So we'll have to have an update. So this, this is a great episode as a start to this conversation, but we'll have to continue this arc soon, have on more experts, uh, and really think about not only legalization in New York uh, and other cities, but just legalization. So I think that's a, a great sort of theme to begin to talk about today and, and follow in the future. Yeah. And also who will be growing it, right? Will, these, will, will there be growers around the city? Will they be upstate? Who will be growing it in this area? Where will it actually be coming from? Um, and that would be interesting in the future if we could actually talk to a grower. So, yeah. And think about the process of growing and what's changing there with technology and and all the many threads that we've talked about in other episodes, they still apply to cannabis. It's another plant. So yeah, I think these are things that we should keep in mind as we uh, move forward and hopefully keep doing these interviews. Fields theme music is by Sam Tyndall. Our amazing producing engineer at Heritage Radio is Liam Warner. And another big thanks to Liam Warner for the music on this episode. Fields is powered by Symbolcast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.